Good morning. Please join me in the gospel of Matthew chapter three, uh, verse 13. If you were with us last Sunday, uh, we left off with John the Baptist preparing uh, the way for the Messiah by calling the nation to repentance. And then those who responded were baptized with water. It was a, it was a baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. And uh, so you, you see there are, are uh, just as is in there. Well, let me, let me put it this way by way of review. It's just, I really think we got to kind of focus in on the pros- prophecy aspect. Cause that's Matthew's drive here. And um, what the author of Matthew, Matthew, the author is doing, don't worry, I'll get my mind together. When I lead worship and I teach, I cannot switch gears. So it takes me, you're going to find like, it's going to take five minutes. And it's like, Oh, there he is. He's back. Yeah. So I'm not here, but I'm here. I'm reading right now, but yeah. Singing. That's right. And just by way of review. Yeah. So by way of review church, come on, you got to focus now. Listen, Matthew has been making the point that Jesus is the Messiah by pointing out various prophecies as we've been going along. That's his point. That's his, that's what he's been, been doing these first few chapters. He's that Jesus is fulfilled what the old Testament prophets had said the Messiah would be or do or something about him. And, and you know, just as there was in their day, there is in ours, you know, false prophets, false teachers. Jesus said in the last days, there will be false Christ. Well, how do you know who the real Christ is? Who, how do you know who's true and false? Well, one of the ways that the Jews would be able to tell who their Messiah was, is that this old scriptures, old Testament scriptures laid it out for them in prophecy, who he would be uh, tons of things about the Messiah. And so that's one of the major ways that Israel would know. And we know that Jesus is actually truly the Messiah that he fulfills prophecies given to him by the prophets in the old Testament. And so the Messiah was a particular person who was to come forward. It wasn't anybody. It wasn't a title you could work up to. It wasn't going, Hey, you know what? I'm going to be an apostle. Thank you very much because I've gone to XYZ college and because people think I'm gifted. Therefore I'm going to be your apostle. Thank you very much. I'm going to be your Messiah. You know, I just think that's right. You know, no, like we all, we immediately know that, but inherently when someone was doing maybe signs or was very powerful or charismatic or whatever it might be, there'd be a little confusion in the society. Listen, John the Baptist did zero miracles. And yet people walked up to him and they said, are you him? Are you him? And that's why he has to clarify. Listen, No, I can't even deal with his shoes. And so it's important that Matthew, Matthew thinks it's important for us to understand that we know without a, without a doubt. And the Jews knew without a doubt, this is the one who the scriptures spoke of. If you remember in Luke 24 on the day of Jesus's resurrection from the dead, there were two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember that? And they're walking and they are just dumbfounded with everything that just happened. They left Jerusalem. They're on the way home, wherever they're going. And I want to read to you what the, that little section in Luke 24, 15, you can follow along if you want, but it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew him, drew, uh, drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. <laughs> 
And they, and they, and, and then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that are happening in these days? Where have you been? I mean, this was everybody who's anybody knows what just happened in Jerusalem. And he said to them, what things? Obviously Jesus drawn it out of him. And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in the word and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. That's code for the Messiah. We were hoping that this was him, but we had hoped we'd hope that. And yes. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, verse 22, some women of our company were amazed us this morning. Uh, they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Verse 25 key to what we're talking about. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to what? To believe all that the, who the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Did you not know? Did you not read the old Testament? Right? It's all pointing It all laid it out. Here it is. And then what happens in Jesus, what Jesus does in their ignorance, verse 27 and beginning with what Moses, that's the first five books of the law, right? And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning what himself, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All the prophecies from Genesis all the way to the close of, of, of Malachi, all in there sprinkled prophecies concerning the Messiah, the one that would redeem Israel. And they were blind to it. If not for Jesus coming, opening in their eyes. And although we were not at this Bible study, and this is one of the Bible studies I want to be at. I wish I was walking along there and just a fly on the wall. You know, I wanted to be called foolish by Jesus. Right. And show me Lord, show me, you know, open my eyes. Well, he has. And no doubt Matthew, who was the disciples, you find these disciples come back to Jerusalem. They're all gathered together. They're talking about Jesus opens up to them. The scriptures concerning himself after his resurrection. I'm sure he was trying, he was trying to do it before. And this is Matthew giving us that Bible study. This is Matthew going through and saying, this is what all the old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah. That's important. Now, just to drive this home uh, of how improbable it is for one man to fulfill all this, because it can't just be any person. It can't just be you fulfill one of these things. You have to fulfill all of the things concerning the Messiah. There was a study uh, by a professor at Westmont college. He, and, and, and his students, apparently uh, he submitted their work to a committee of American scientific affiliation, which agreed to be with his cal that his calculations were dependable. Basically he's a professor of probability. And so 600 students, 12 different classes, probability of Jesus fulfilling various, these various prophecies. They started with one in Bethlehem and he worked it out by the current population and all this kind of stuff. One in 300,000. 
was the idea of being able to fill, fulfill uh, that, that prophecy. Well, then they jumped up to, well, what's the prophet uh, probability fulfilling all eight prophecies. That's 10 to the 17th power. And you know, I'm a math guy. I mean, I'm visualizing this. I understand this. And uh, so he gives me pictures, pictures helps um, to illustrate how large the number 10 to the 17th power. It's a figure with seven. It's a figure with 17 zeros after it. The professor gave this illustration. If you, if you mark one of 10 tickets and, and, and place all the tickets in a hat um, and stir them and ask, uh, and ask a blindfold man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. We kind of get that. That's, that's what I'm following. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them out over the face of Texas. Guess what? They'll cover all the state two feet deep with silver dollars. That's a big number. Two feet deep, silver dollars, the state of Texas. Pretty big place, right? They say uh, Ukraine's like as big as Texas or something like that right now. So we'll cover all the state two feet deep. Now, now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar that has the special mark on it. What chance would you, would he have of getting the right one first time? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day, uh, from their day to the present time. That's what we're talking about here with eight prophecies. And then he went on to 50 prophecies and what's the probability of that. And then the 450 prophecies that we see. And the professor concludes any man who rejects Christ as the son of God rejects a fact uh, proved perhaps more absolutely than other, any other fact in the world. I mean, we're not dealing with lunacy here. We're dealing with the improbability of Jesus being able to do any of this or one person being able to do any of this. Even if you know all of this stuff, you can't choose where you're going to be born quite often, unless your parents do. But, and it's so what we read is so Matthew in the first chapter. He's just laying these out for us that he is of the lineage of Abraham. He's the, of the lineage of David, um, the legal lineage and to, and to him being born of the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem of a virgin. And even being uh, even the slaughter that was brought about by Herod upon the region in an attempt to kill the baby uh, Jesus that was prophesied. And this led to the fulfillment. The Messiah would come out of Egypt because they fled down to Egypt and he came up out of Egypt. Well, when he got back into the land, he couldn't stay there. And so he had to be raised in Nazareth, apparently another prophecy, which isn't recorded, but they must've been uh, good uh, knowledge among everybody. And so Matthew shows us then that John the Baptist comes on the scene and he fulfills prophecy. He's talking about the one who is coming and what he would be like and the spirit and power of Elijah and all this type of stuff. And he comes in here and here we have John the Baptist of a priestly lineage his dad was Zechariah was a priest, right? And yet he wasn't a priest. And here he was in this amazing role and choosing of God. And he becomes on the scene. He starts preaching a baptism of repentance, a priest that's out in the wilderness, preaching that people would repent and get ready for the Messiah. And there was such power and such a, well, he's a charismatic uh, word anointing God's God's call upon this man that people were responding they were coming out to him in droves. Even the Pharisees were coming out to, to see what was going on. 
And so Matthew points out over and over how Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies and they were uttered by the prophets hundreds of years earlier, thousand years earlier, even beyond that. And we left off in verse 11 and 12 as people were coming out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And everybody's amazed at him, but he says, but he was coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals. I'm not worthy to carry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy spirit and fire. That's what his ability is. Then his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. And, but the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so what John is saying there is, listen, I'm calling you to repentance. And this is a, your hearts are turning towards me. And we're doing this water baptism, which is a symbol of your repentance. But I'm telling you, there's one with a greater baptism that is coming. One who is able to baptize you with the Holy spirit or baptize you with fire. And these two terms are fire in verse 10 is on judgment. 11. He's saying here and verse 12 is judgment. So fire is not a Holy spirit fire. It's the fire of judgment. So what the analogy here is Jesus Christ is coming. He can give you eternal life or he can give you unquenchable fire. Get your hearts ready because I'm unworthy, but he's the one who can baptize you with the Holy spirit. And that is what we need. The regeneration of the Holy spirit where a dead person comes to life by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But to reject Jesus Christ is to receive the ladder to remain in our sins. And the only answer that God has for us then is, is the fire of his wrath. And so all the eyes are pointing to this prophesied King. Who is it? Obviously we know we pick up in verse 13. This is Matthew's point is to now bring Jesus into the public light. Then Jesus came from Galilee to be uh, to, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And so Jesus, the son of God, God in the flesh, he enters into his public ministry here in verse 13. And it says in verse 13, that he came from Galilee. That's in the North. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And John comes to be, and he comes to be baptized by John. Now, right about now, what are you guys thinking? Jesus is coming to be baptized by John, who is calling everybody to do what? Repent and be baptized. Doesn't connect, does it? What are you doing, Jesus? You want me to baptize you? What? This is wrong. This seems very, very wrong. If you're thinking that John's thinking the same thing. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me. You've got it all wrong. Jesus like, this is not right. And, and, and it's not as if John's like trying to correct Jesus. He's, 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 he's thinking This is not fitting. He knew his own state. Listen, John was a holy man. He was called apart. He was like a Nazarene and all that type of stuff or the vow of the Nazarite. You know, he didn't know drink or all this kind of stuff. He, he was just pure and set apart by God and he was holy. And here he was. And yet he knew his own sinfulness before God. And he's saying, I can't baptize you. It's, it's unfitting. It doesn't seem right. So Jesus has to show him what's going on. You know, the interesting thing here is, I guess the Greek has the idea that John kept, kept on preventing him. And they're trying to translate it into the English where it says that John would have prevented him. The idea is that he, he had to be convinced otherwise is, is the idea. I think 
because there was no way that Jesus needed to be baptized. And you know, if you look at this chapter, we, we just went over it. The Pharisees came out, the Sadducees came out and he would not baptize them. A lot of them, I guess that we, there were ones that did come to the Lord. We read about that in Acts, but he wouldn't do that because their hearts weren't pure on the inside. Now the, we've got the opposite problem here. <laughs> John's preventing Jesus's baptism because his heart is pure. There is no need of repentance in Jesus. Make sense. I can't do this. I'm the sinner here. I'm the one who needs to be washed by you. Anybody who walks by the Lord and serves the Lord, you know this. And the longer you walk with them, the more you know it. Amen. But Jesus, verse 15, answered and said, let it be so now for thus it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented, John, this is right. This is good. This is fitting. This is of God for me to do this. And there's a lot of reasons why people think that why Jesus got baptism, but I keep, I keep going back to this whole passage has to do with Jesus following the will of the father. That's what he's doing. He's willingly going into what would be him taking upon the sin of the world upon himself, identifying with sinful humanity. I believe that the root of it is at the very onset of Jesus's ministry. He was testifying that he was committed to glorifying his father by obeying his will. And his will was that Jesus would save sinners. Second Corinthians five 21 comes to mind for our sake. He, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, I think it was the father's will that Jesus, the sinless spotless son of God would take upon himself, our sin and die upon the cross, taking our penalty upon himself. Listen, Jesus is God, but he was also man. And in his humanity, he identified with us and not that he was sinless, but he was going to take upon our sins upon him. So Jesus here in baptism is not testifying that he's a sinner. And that's not the thing. He's not testifying that he needs to repent as some would say, he's testifying. I believe that he is committed to fulfilling his father's will to take our sin upon himself. And baptism has that symbolism for us as well. Jesus's baptism is unique to him, but there is, he is the prototype for us in that it's a symbolism of, of death, spiritual cleansing and new life. That's kind of the picture of baptism that we see in the scripture, Christian baptism all through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is the forerunner who went before us in these things, who died the death that we could not die, who paid the price that we could not pay, who rose again and conquered death that we could not conquer. Galatians 2 20 says, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I live now live by faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. So Jesus says to, to John, this is right this is righteous. What we're doing here. We're not saying I'm sinful. Something else is being said here. And, and this is, this is right. And John consented and, and here's what happens. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, what happens? The heavens were open to him. 
And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I want to point out a few important things here. Um, I struggled going from here into the next chapter because um, it's just a big chunk and there's a lot. And I really want to hunker down on the first that Jesus is being pulled into the wilderness by the, by the spirit and going to temptation. Cause that whole, that really needs to have justice uh, next week. But so we're, it's going to be a shorter message today. I know you're all disappointed, <laughs> but I, I want to point out a few things here. First, Jesus was baptized and the word baptism means to dip. That's what it means is to dip. All right. And there's been a lot of disagreement. How many of you come from a background where you're, you, you were, um, you know, baptized in spring, you know, maybe sprinkling or baptized as an infant and all that type of stuff. Right? There's, there's different church histories with different roots there. Um, <clears throat> in how people are baptized the mode of baptism, uh, sprinkling or full submersion are the two major ones. But the example we have in scripture is being what? Dipped, submerged. Now listen, the submersion doesn't save you. If someone was dipped or sprinkled, I understand there's, there's different things, but notice that Jesus came up from the water. He came up out of the water. And so baptism is a symbol, right? And it's, it's, it's full submersion. And the example we have is, is that if, of how we are baptized every time we see it is full submersion. Right. That's, that's kind of what we see here. Not in, in Baptist. It's not about the water. It's what all that represents. Listen, God alone cleanses. God alone saves. God alone gives new life. And that's what this is pointing to here. The water is a symbol of, of total death, not a sprinkling of death. The pot, the, the baptism is a symbol of total cleansing, not partial, partial cleansing. It's a symbol of total new life, absolute full new life, absolutely new life when you come out of the water. And so it's, it's not, it's not a partial work. It's a full work. And so baptism, the very word is, is that we get submerged. And that is why when we baptize, we baptize with water. Now um, I understand the situation. Someone's dying and they're in a bathtub and all that kind of stuff. And they want to be baptized. You know, I don't think we need to be super legalistic about this, but this is the example we have. We have, we don't have an example of children in scripture being baptized, pedo baptism. It's not there. I, I've heard all the people argue about it back and forth. Uh, and I understand the reasons why they would do it. And, and the one verse they hang on there, it's not in there. It's people who know the Lord and come to Jesus and believe upon him. They are baptized. Okay. So if you were baptized as a kid, you know, and, and that was your deal. That's your background where you came from and you love, you've grown up and now you realize you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's time to get baptized. If you're baptized as a kid, you weren't aware of it, all that kind of stuff. If you're sprinkled, all stuff, it's time to follow Jesus in obedience and, and, and be baptized. It's important. It's one of the two things that Jesus calls us to do. One of the two rituals that Jesus calls us to do. One is communion. And as often as you do it, how often do we do that? Once a month. Did you know in the home group, you could probably get together and reverently have communion together, at least in our tradition. You know, we could have communion every week. 
But as often as we do it, do it in remembrance of him. The symbol points to a reality and it's him. Baptism points to the reality and it is Christ. The new life we have in him, the washing away of our sins, all those types of things. There's a lot there. But as Jesus is baptized, he's dipped into the water. So he's baptized, he's baptized. First of all, we see the triune God on display here in these verses, the father, the son, the Holy spirit, the son, the Holy spirit, the father actually in this order. And we see the son being baptized. First of all, in obedience to the father. Secondly, notice here we see in verse 16, we have the Holy spirit descending upon the son in the form of a dove. It says the heavens were opened to him. And so <clears throat> that is to John. So there is a supernatural rendering, a rending of from this, this temporal domain into the eternal to the throne room of heaven. I don't even know how to describe all that. I mean, I know I'm kind of going off here, but right now, I mean, how many of us like say a hundred years ago, Oh yeah, there's waves flying around here. And you know, if you have, one of these in the future, you'd be able to communicate with someone on the other, other earth instantly. He was like, ah, burn them at the stake. You know, all that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying that there is a spiritual realm around us. We can't see it, but we will, <laughs> we will. And you got to have the right communicator in your heart, which is the Holy spirit. But the heavens were open to John and John saw the spirit of God descending in the form of a dove and resting upon Jesus. An amazing thing. Now, Matthew doesn't record it for us, but John, the apostle tells us that John, the Baptist of, of his witness. So two Johns here, John, the apostle is writing about John, the Baptist in John 1, 32 through 34, that the sign that God would give John, that he would know without a doubt that this is the Messiah, that the Holy spirit would descend on the form of of a dove and rest upon the one who was the Messiah, the chosen one. Now, John was Jesus's cousin. So they knew each other. I bet you he had a real big hunch. You know, I'm just saying Jesus is a little different, right? (laughs) Man, he's so good. Like, wow. How does he know the scripture so deeply? And, And like, it's amazing. You know, but the Holy spirit descending upon the Messiah in the form of the dove was, was the sign that God had chosen Jesus, so to speak. And, and, and he did in this, in the significance of the dove in Jewish life. I know we think of peace, you know, and all that type of stuff, but actually it's sacrifice. The dove would have been a picture of sacrifice. If you remember when Mary and Joseph went to the temple, whenever that was, they offered their sacrifice. And what was the sacrifice? It's a turtle dove they offered a dove and there were three different, basically sacrifices according to your income that you could give. If you were well off, you would give a bull, you know? And if that wasn't you, you give a lamb. And if that wasn't you and you you didn't have much, you give a dove. That's what Mary and Joseph gave. They gave a dove. And I I don't want to read too much into it, but I just think the Holy spirit coming down the form of the dove, the humblest, form of sacrifice and yet the most broadly applying form of sacrifice that Jesus would do. Um, There's, there's more there, but I don't want to get too into speculation there, but Jesus would be sacrificed for the sins of the poorest of men. Isn't that amazing? The greatest for the least is as well as the rich, by the way, 
And so the picture of the Holy Spirit being in the form of dove remind us of that in a way, but the significance of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus is really, if we look at Luke 4, 18, uh, Jesus talks about the significance of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus wasn't lacking anything. He was fully God, fully man. And I think what happens here is in Luke 14, Jesus talks about the anointing. Jesus was the Messiah, but what was happening is this was a public declaration and public way of, of us understanding who he was. In Luke 4:18, Jesus was in Nazareth in his home synagogue, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and starts reading out the of chapter 61, which was uttered 700 years older earlier. And Jesus says this in a way that everybody's looking at him and marvels at him. They're going, what in the world? This is like Joseph and Mary's son. And this is what Jesus said. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set liberty at liberty, those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. <clears throat> and he rolled it up and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> Jesus walks into church, busts up in Isaiah, reads it and says, this just happened. That's me. And they got mad. I think they wanted to kill him. Right? Yeah. They said, this is, aren't you the guy down the street and all this type of stuff? And so what is made being made clear as Jesus is reading this prophecy about himself was that he was anointed by the spirit for a purpose. Now anointing is, is what we see in the old Testament, what happened to prophets or to Kings or to priests. It was a symbol of God's authority and his, and, and their calling upon their lives. And so the Holy spirit, is the, you know, Jesus wasn't anointed with oil. He was later for his death and things like that. But what, what was he anointed with at the beginning of his ministry? It wasn't the oil of, of man. What was it? It was the Holy spirit. That that's the anointing and the power that he would be walking in is the power of God and the power that he was given and the mission he was given and all these things. I say power he was given. I, and I struggle with that, but to proclaim to preach the good news to the poor, thus the dove, right? To proclaim freedom to the captives. He went to a very dark world. This is a very dark world with captives all over the place. One of the most difficult places to minister is Walla Walla, Washington. There are captives everywhere. Do you not know that? We can be as free as we can be with all of our accoutrements of America and all these things and be total captives to the enemy and said, amen. amen. It's difficult. You know, we've got church in China praying for us. Praise God. But Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor. Thus are the poor in what spirit. So not only to the poor, the physically poor, but to the poor in spirit. And you're going to see dual things here. Uh, proclaim freedom to the captives, those who were actually captive, uh, those who were under the boot of the Roman government, right? But also to captives to sin, captives to death, all those types of things, the greater reality under the power of the, of the devil and to heal the blind. Did Jesus walk around healing the blind? The answer is what? Yes. But what did he also do? <laughs> he gave the blind sight, the spiritually blind to be able to see the kingdom of God. 
He gave people spiritual healing. He did that with the mute and all these other things to feed, to free the oppressed. People were demonically oppressed and filled by the enemy and his work in their life. And Jesus busted in with the light of his righteousness and said, get out of here. And they were gone. This is what Jesus is in the business of doing. He has been, and he is now through the work of his Holy spirit in his church. Amen. But Jesus came preaching the kingdom. This is the kingdom. When we're talking about the idea of the kingdom, it's not like, ah, okay, there's a little castle and there's a little, land around it. And we get to be serfs and all that stuff. No, this is the kingdom, the kingdom of light of righteousness of the way God does things. Amen. Good news, freedom of sight, freedom, liberty, the Holy spirit anointed him for this. And the idea is anointing was a manifestation of authority upon someone. Again, a priest, a prophet, a King. And Jesus was all these not anointed with oil, but anointed with the spirit of God. And again, I don't believe he was lacking anything, but in his humanity, there was the anointing of the spirit. Now, I I don't believe uh, again that Jesus was lacking anything, but man, he was also human. He got tired. Anybody else get tired? How many of you just like, oh, I can't wait till this is over. I gotta go. (laughs) Start praying. Lord, give me a. 10 minute filling of your Holy spirit, not to get weird, but you know, I'm just saying, let me give me over the, like, fill me, let, give me eyes and ears to hear, to accomplish what you've called me to today. Amen. I mean, what could happen in the next few minutes could be life changing because the word of God is here. And the God of the, the spirit of God is here among his church. But this was a visible symbol to John who of who Jesus was. He was the son of God, God in the flesh operating in the full authority and power of the father and all that he did. And, and the father is also in view here. So we have the son and we have the spirit and we have also the father here all at once. You have the son submitting to the father, the spirit anointing the son and the father. He says, and he speaks in verse 17. What does he say? It's his voice is coming from where from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There are three things the father declares here. I just want to quickly go over them. The first is that the father declares from heaven that he is his son. I'm going to reverse order real quickly, but he's a son. This is important. This is the declaration. This is my son. You all are not. This is my son. This is the son of God. Very important. Distinct made Jesus different from anyone. And John one says of Jesus in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word, the son of God existed for all eternity, for all time before heavens and the earth were even created. The the son and the father were together. And then in verse 14 of John one, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal son of God was manifested in time and space. We in John says in John chapter first, John one, We've seen him. We've touched him. We've handled the word of life. We've, we've been around him. We've, we've been with God. He's here. And here the father says, this is my son, but not just like my son. He is my, what? It's my beloved son. Some people translate, but, but well, beloved that has that word agape in here. 
That's that God kind of love that sacrificial love. That love is just for someone else. I think parents can touch on this, right? You know, I love my son. I, he is the son of my love. You know what I mean? That's another way it's translated. The son of my love, my heart beating outside my chest, right? And here he, here the father says, I love him. It's a public declaration of the father's love for his son. He loves the son intensely and fiercely. He didn't send the neighbor. He sent his son to us. Knowing what would happen. He sent his best. He sent himself. And this is interesting. Some in in Jesus' prayer in John 17. And this is just one, one example here. Jesus is praying. He says, I'm I'm praying all this father, not for our benefit because we we're tight. This is the people who are listening. And in John 17, right? This is right before he dies. Jesus speaks of the love that the father has for him in verses 24 through 26. There's a lot in here, but just pick up on the love aspect. He says, father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Why? Because you have loved me before the foundations of the world. The love that the father has for the son surpasses time and space. It's unfathomable. It's ancient. It's deep. It's as deep as love will ever be. God is love. He's the origin of it. And that love is wrapped up in his love for his son. The love that the father has for his son isn't something new. Verse 25, he go, Jesus goes on. Oh, righteous father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you. I intimately know you. I've known you all this time. That's a poor choice of words. Time. <laughs> and these And and these know that you have sent me and I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. In you. The fierce eternal love that the father has for the son would be known in you. This is what it is to be in Christ, to be forgiven, to be cleansed. It is to be fully submerged in the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe would not perish, but have eternal life. And that life is all in the context of his love is deep love. What an, what it's amazing is that Jesus's prayer, which is the father's heart is that we would know God's love, the same love that Jesus knows the love that the father openly declares here in Matthew three. Isn't that cool? He invites you into the inner circle. And this is all because he loves his son. 
He loves his son so much. He went and got a bride for him that they could come with him for all eternity. And whatever that's going to look like, all I know is you're not going to be bored. And I know it's going to be just love, (laughs) righteousness, light, goodness. This world is going to fade away. Church wars will cease and he will reign. So that third thing the father declares about his son here is not only that he loves him, but he's well pleased. He's well pleased. Jesus was totally fit for the work he was called to, that he was about to go to. Listen, when the priests would get ready for a sacrifice, people would bring their offerings to the temple and the priest's job was to inspect that sacrifice. And you know how we get with our worship Anybody else? You like to give the Lord the leftovers. You like to give the Lord, maybe not our best. Anybody else? Just me. You know, here, Lord, here's my one winged dove. (laughs) I'm keeping all the good ones. Lord, here's my lame lamb. You know, my blind bull here. You can have all it. No, spotless, perfect in and out inside just the purity of God within him. Jesus was totally fit. The Lord was well pleased in his son to become the sacrifice, to minister on his behalf, to represent God. There was no blemish. And we're going to see that there was no blemish because we're going to move into the next chapter of temptation. And the devil is going to try to penetrate that, but you can't penetrate the one who has no sin, (laughs) Jesus Christ. And how he handles that as a model for us, but there's no blemish in him. He was tested in every way that we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15, amen. A great high priest who went before you, who went before me. Anyways, that's what we'll be leading into next Sunday. The temptation of Jesus as Jesus anointed by the Holy spirit is led into the wilderness to be tempted by, by, uh, uh, by the devil. I'll explain more later. Does God tempt us? Does God draw us into temptation? What's all that about? Stay tuned. (laughs) How do we combat temptation? What is, what did Jesus do? All that kind of stuff, especially in the world we're living in. Father, thank you. Lord, we want to just say back to you, we love you. And we know that your son said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And this is my command that you love one another. The way I have loved you. Sacrificially. Teach us about your love. That we may not only know it and experience it, but manifest it in our relationships with one another. Oh Lord, forgive us for our sin and our short-sightedness and selfishness and all these things that we, we gravitate towards. And Lord, thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for busting in. Thank you for your light and your goodness. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for the promise that is yet to be fulfilled. The day when we see you face to face. 
And so Lord, we just praise you and worship you this morning. We ask that you have our whole hearts. May you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And as the ancient church said, thine is the kingdom and the glory and the honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you church. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.